This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. My guest (laughs) on The Literary Life today is Susan Wiggs, as well as my two dogs, who you can hear in the background. Susan is the author, and I'm going to say this right, of 50 novels. That's right, 50 novels. And Susan is a young woman, so... It's pretty amazing that she's written as many as she has. But her most recent one is called The Lost and Found Bookshop. It's really quite beautifully written and quite a beautiful story. And you can imagine, for me, uh, it has extra special meaning, particularly at a time, and, and Susan and I will talk about it, when we're in the middle of a pandemic, when we can't all visit our bookshops as much as we would like to. Susan is also known for the Lakeshore Chronicles, uh, Family Tree, were both New York Times bestsellers. And about this book, I thought I would quote a little bit from someone I really admire, and that's Garth Stein. Um, uh, Garth has a a new book coming out actually soon. It's a graphic novel called Cloven. And Garth says of this book, Uh, a wonderful exploration of the past and the future, and most importantly, of what it means to be present in the here and now, full of the love of words, the love of family, and the love of falling in love. The Lost and Found Bookshop is a big-hearted gem of a novel that will satisfy and entertain readers from all walks of life. And he says with a big explanation point, lovely. Susan, I couldn't agree more. Oh, thank Welcome. you, and and, th- and special thanks to Garth. I know he he is always inundated with requests to read and and endorse, and it was incredibly generous of him to to um, to offer that and to read my book. It's very humbling when you know once a book is out, it's not my book anymore. It, it belongs to the readers, and everybody reads a different book. You just hope it lands right with the right readers. Well, this one has already, and I know it will continue to. But what I, really, what I really loved is in doing just a little bit of research and looking on your website. Um, this is what I, you know, when, when uh, someone was describing you, uh, it was Susan Wiggs' life is all about family, friends, and fiction. She lives at the water's edge on an island in Puget Sound. And in good weather, she commutes to a writer's group in a 21-foot motorboat. That's what I want to do. How do you think that? <laughs> I'm very spoiled. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say that in the winter, but, you know, when the weather is nice, there's no nicer spot. And so I feel very lucky to live here. And boating is actually um, a social distancing activity. So I've been doing plenty of that this summer. Oh, that's beautiful. So I mentioned that you've, you've written 50 novels. And I know that... It started when you were very, 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 very young. You, had, uh, you were writing when you were a, a young kid. When did the bug hit and how did it hit? 
Um, that I'm glad you asked that because I, I would say every writer has a different answer. You know, some writers they start when they retire or later in life, but I was um, I was like straight out of the womb. I was writing, and the reason that I know that is that I, I'm the middle of three kids, and we were all stair step, you know, just two years apart. And when I was very small and just learning how to hold a pen in my little hand, you know, three years old, I would, I would draw on paper and tell my mother, write this down. And I would tell her a story and God love her. She would write it down. And it was always about kids getting chased up trees and getting in trouble. And um, she saved my early writings. And so I have some of my you know, very tiny writings all the way, and then all the way up through school. But I, so I always knew that I wanted to write. I had that wonderful teacher that you hope every kid has. Um, Mrs. Green um, took me aside in the third grade because I was um, reading Charlotte's Web and some kids were still learning to sound out words. And so she let me read anything I wanted to read. And um, I told her I wanted to be a book writer. So she said, well, you should write a book. And indeed I did. She gave me, you know, a big chief tablet and some staples and tape and I put together a book. And, and so I have been at it for a good while, as you said. And I believe um, I sold my first book in 1987. It came out and um, I've written, um, published a book or two every year since. So it's definitely been my career for the last 30, almost 32 years. And I know that you took a little bit of a windy road that took you through Harvard and you were a math student and you were a math teacher there. Not there, but you became a math teacher. So what was your moment, as they say, your moment of Zen when you said, okay, I'm going to give it up and I'm just going to write? I was always convinced that I was meant to write. And, and I, was, I was such a reader. I was, I was that bookstore um, patron that was there not just once a week, you know, a couple times a week, same with the library. And so I always knew that that I was headed for this, but I was very practical as well. You know, I was a, a math student and a teacher and a French student. And I, I always knew that um, nobody was going to pay me money to be an aspiring writer. <laughs> And I was not—I was not successful finding a patron of the arts like they did in the old days. And so I tried to pick a career that was fulfilling to me, that I loved to do, which was teaching, um, that would also pay the rent and um, hopefully, you know, give me time to write. So I thought I would write in the evenings and the summers off, and and indeed that's how I kind of organized my life around that. But my moment when I totally threw in my lot with. Um, the writing side of things was I had public, I had sold a few novels and um, published a few things and they were sort of coming along and doing okay. And then there was a day when um, I had a book that it was a very big historical novel that I had out um, in the eighties. And, and um, I got a royalty check for that book that was bigger than my entire teacher's salary for a year. And it was a little bittersweet because it means that we underpay teachers grotesquely and still do. Um, but it also was validation that, you know, possibly I could make this my life and my career. And so I did have that moment. And, and I looked at my, at that time, very young daughter 
and she needed to be raised and she was going to need an education. And I thought, you know what, the responsible thing is to provide for her in the most productive way that I can. And so I ended up first, you know, um, going part-time as a teacher and then, and then I had to let it go all together. The writing sort of took over and it's been that way ever since. And it's been very fulfilling, but it's definitely a windy road. And I don't recommend it for people who are not super dedicated because it definitely has its moments. Well, and now is a moment, right? So oh what, is God, it, yes. what does it feel like to be bringing out a book now at this time? Wow. I'm glad you asked that question because um, it's something that um, I've been grappling with. The book came out this month, um, July 7th, and in the planning up through, um, up until really early March, it was always assumed that they would put together this publicity tour and a book signing tour, and I would visit bookstores and book groups and do the usual book publicity things. And we were all on track for that. And everything just came to a screeching halt. And it got very real when they said, nobody is booking events because you don't want to go to all the trouble to put something together only to have to cancel it. And so I didn't have a clue what it would be like having a book come out in a pandemic. And um, I'm lucky in that um, in February, I had a paperback book out, um, a book that was out in um, it originally in 2019, the Oysterville Sewing Circle. It came out in paperback in February, and it was for sale in essential stores that got to stay open, like Target and Walmart and Costco and things like that. And so that book um, was a was a reminder to readers oh there's going to be a new susan wiggs book but nobody knew what that was going to look like and so one thing that my publisher did that i'm so grateful that they did is they did a pretty big run of review copies advanced reader copies of the book in the spring specifically for independent booksellers i think they found like a few hundred independent booksellers to send this book to and solicit their feedback and get their reaction. Um, and it was enormously gratifying because so many of them said, you know what, this book hit my mailbox the minute I was running out the door to close my, my bookstore indefinitely because of the pandemic. And so people were reading it and it was kind of propping me up to know and feel validated that somebody is gonna read and like this book. Um, I didn't know anything about what it would be like because if you think about it, the shipping got all fouled up and the distribution got all fouled up. And so people weren't quite sure what would happen when we try to publish a brand new novel in the middle of all this. And so- It was very difficult, but your publisher Morrow uh, and Harper has been have been really wonderful. In oh, terms thanks of for saying that. Up, I agree. Keeping us uh, uh, updated about it. And it is a book that has distinguished itself among our staff. Uh, it's a book that we're able to hand sell. We are open now, but our stores are open. and But we are doing a big online business as well. And uh, it's funny, just before I got on this Zoom, I get a list of all the online sales that happen. And... Uh, I don't know, but someone bought this book plus two of your earlier ones from us online. Oh, that's so good to hear. 
I mean, so you can see you see these things happen in real time, and it's kind you of see, yeah. And, and the, the writer never does. You know, the last time I saw my book, you know, I was shipping the manuscript off to you know to be right. edited produced and so um, it's it's a, a bit surreal but thank you to readers who will go to your website there's nothing that replaces wandering into a really great bookstore like your no, book the art of the art of browsing and you, you you i mean your book is a celebration of bookstores uh in so many ways and one of the questions that i had for you was okay so you've written 50 books what makes this different from all other of your books in your mind? Um, you know, that's a, that's a good question. I've not been asked that about this book, but the first thing that I thought of is I've never set a book in San Francisco and it's one of my most favorite um, cities in the world. And I, I've been to a lot of places and I love San Francisco. I just like to go there. I love to go there. I love, the atmosphere and the food and the energy and the neighborhoods and just everything about it. And so, and I never um, had an opportunity until I was plotting this book and I realized that there was a storyline that had to do with the building that my fictional bookstore is in. And um, without saying any spoilers, it's a, it's a bookstore that survived the great earthquake and fire of 1906. But, 20% of the buildings I think were still standing and it had some and so it sort of had this historical play and I, I wanted that and I also needed it for the plot because as you can tell from the title the lost and found bookshop um, lost things are found throughout the, the course of the book and, and so my building in the book where the bookstore ultimately ended up my building started life as a saloon and a brothel and so the soldiers would have their last night of drinking before being deployed um, there. And they would, you know, carve out a, a brick out of the wall or find a little spot in the basement to hide their little valuables and come back for it. And as we all know, they don't always come back. And so as Natalie, my bookseller, is um, struggling to save this not just the bookstore and the business itself but the building itself which is falling apart they're ripping into these leaky walls and looking under the plaster and they start finding things and so that was a little piece of the plot it's not the main plot but i was very intrigued by that and i felt like it was a good metaphor for this woman to pick up the pieces of her life and and find a way to move on and so i thought well finding that is a good metaphor for her to you know find her true path would it be fair to say that in saving the bookshop natalie saves herself at the same time that she absolutely yeah yeah she um she was a she's a person who um reminds me maybe of me in my 30s when um you live I, I think before you really really figure out your own personal essence of yourself you live in your identity i'm supposed to be this person you know and so she had sort of crafted a a life for herself she she was mom was single all her life and um the only father figure she had was her grandfather who's still alive in in the book but um she thought that she should organize her life around stability and predictability and so she got this corporate career and um 
that was the antithesis of the chaotic life of an independent business. I shouldn't say chaotic, but it can be unpredictable and have a lot of challenges to be, um, to be self-employed. And so when she's obliged by circumstances to come back and, um, and go back into book selling as her career, that's absolutely when she starts to realize she's not living in her essence. She's in her identity and, um, something's wrong and I try to show that in a book um, for readers who haven't read it yet pay attention to the clothes that she was in certain key scenes um, probably guys wouldn't relate to this as much but women are always very aware of what they're wearing in a certain situation you know what what did I wear on this day and we see her evolve into this much more um, emotional and fulfilled person towards the end her her whole look changes and so I tried to do that to sort of show um, the steps along the way of her journey you know I think your book does not fall into a genre specific kind of thing but for a very long time you had been writing what would be called romances or historical romances I say that with the utmost respect yeah. because as you probably know right now there is a renaissance going on in yeah. that romance field um, you know some of the most sophisticated readers I know are reading romances and uh, you know in fact uh, four booksellers came up to me and said you know you have to have a romance section and I have always been of the opinion that romance is like fiction, so it would be in fiction. But they, they really uh, compelled me to, and I let them curate the whole section. And it's been doing really, really well. And what's so interesting is these elevated romances uh, defy, you know, formula. They're not really formulaic at all. And what's so wonderful about it is that really what they are is it's fiction in which there is love and usually the love is requited, right? So usually it's love that has a happy ending to it, which is what we all want usually out of life. Um, but this seems to be a bit of a crossover for you. So it's really not in that vein because this is, although I didn't pay attention to the clothes really, except in the opening scene. <laughs> <laughs> you can't help but pay attention to the clothes. Um, I found it compelling as something which celebrated basically the power and magic of bookstores. And maybe because it's, it's about my life. I've been doing this now for 40 years. And I started... Oh, thank you for that. Thank you for well, that. I started when you started writing, just about. And so talk a little bit about the power and the magic of, where, of what a bookstore um can contain or what it can present for one of its customers and patrons well i like to think of a bookstore as um a, a candy store is to a kid where and um thank you for having a, a romance section both ways work for me but um i i think that a bookstore that has a dedicated section for the genres for the mysteries the sci-fi 
westerns, romance, um, definitely are bookstores that know their patrons and they know she's going to walk in and she's going to go straight to this section or that section. So my books always, especially my recent books, they always have a love story in them, but they don't, they can't be quite categorized as romance novels so much as um, just fic general fiction. I've seen them termed women's fiction, but I like men to read my books too, so I don't quite want to go there. But um, I think fiction is a good one. I, I, I've seen that categorized as domestic fiction, I think in the UK, call it. And I think what it means is it's not suspense. A woman is being chased or hunted or slashed or, you know, um, it's not a that kind of thing. I like to think it's a page turner, but because you're so curious about this character, what decision is she going to make? What's going to happen? And so I, I'm pretty comfortable calling it a work of fiction. I got to make my perfect bookstore. And what did that look like? And what did the, the entryway look like? And what did it feel like when you walk through the door what were the tables you know the creaky wooden floors and the big chairs and the coffee bar I got to make my fantasy bookstore so that was um, one of the great pleasures writing that book and some of us right now would say keep it a fantasy <laughs> it's a <laughs> it's not an easy thing these days but um, I have to say I could not have ever imagined doing anything else in my life I've just it's, you know, I find, I find bookstores to be a very healing place as well, as it was for Natalie. It's, you know, I can't tell you how many people who've come to work, you know, who've had troubles in their lives, who come to the store, and then they do. They find romance or they find themselves or, you know, they're only at the store for a few years and they move on because they've centered themselves in some way. And I think a bookstore does have that power as opposed to some other kinds of endeavors because you're really dealing with ideas more than anything else you're dealing with books you're dealing with story it's uh it, they're all very magical places and you've brought that out so beautifully in this but it doesn't mean that the story that you wrote doesn't have tension because natalie is dealing with real real life pressures and real kind of work she had a horrendous work experience as well. And she didn't have such a good early romance uh, start, you know, in the, in the book. So, um, you know, those things are clearly very much a part of your, of your work. So dealing with elder care is something that you talk about in this book. Talk a little bit about that, you know, where that worked itself in. Yeah, I've had such a wonderful reaction from, from readers for just that reason. So many of us um, get to this place in our life where we do have to think about our elderly parents or grandparents, like the girl in the book. It's, it's her grandfather who's um, having some serious, serious health issues, dementia, and some other issues. And so that was entirely inspired by my mom, who she's 89. Um, she up until recently, she lived in a in an assisted living place in my town. But when the pandemic hit and everything shut down, um, we brought her to live here permanently. And it's been amazing because um, 
it was just too sad to have to stand outside her window and wave and she's hard of hearing she has early dementia and so it's been really rewarding and also of course challenging but also rewarding to be a, um, a part of, of her journey and I was writing about um, Grandy in the book Grandpa Andrew she calls him Grandy is dealing with some of the same things and um, there are some of my favorite scenes in the book are scenes written from his point of view and I got myself in the mode to write about him from that point of view by talking to my mom you know what does it feel like when you feel forgetful and you lose your way to the bathroom or you know things like that and she's more than happy to talk about it um, well she's not always happy <laughs> but, but um, it was really, it, it made it such a personal, tender book, um, especially on the heels of the book that I had out last year, The Oysterville Selling Circle was about domestic violence survivors, and it was a very angry book. Um, it came out in, a, in another key moment. So this one is a lot more tender and emotional and personal. And so I feel like it, it, was, it was very heartfelt for me because it felt the, the situations felt very real to me. And um, one book that um, you might want to have on your on your list for some of your patrons who are going through this that I like to recommend is a, a book that I read called Advice for Future Corpses by Sally Tisdale. And she's oh, an I like fan. Sally. Sally Tisdale <laughs> is great. Yeah, yeah. I had read something, an article she wrote, and I was curious about her book. And so I, I read her book and I found it really supportive and, and helpful, um, not just for people in this situation, but for their friends and families as well. So I like that. And one thing I should um, let your listeners know is that there, on my website, susanwigs.com, there's a reading guide to this book, to the Lost and Found Bookshop. And there's a page that lists every single book that I cite in the book. Um, most of the books that I mention in my novel are books that I've known and read and loved um, myself. And so my bookseller uh, will be recommending a book during a scene and it will be a book that I've actually loved. And so- um, And there's also great quotes that you have throughout. Yeah, the yeah, I know. I, I love the, the words of wisdom from books. And so I tried to highlight those as well. And so on my, in that reading group guide, there's a, there's a, one of the pages has all the books that I cited um, in my book. And so if anybody wants further reading, there's like probably 50 titles, I think. Well, I love from, uh, I'll just read one of, you know, from the first part, you have a quote from Tuck Everlasting, which is a book that I read and love loved. That book. And you oh my love, God, I love that book. Do not fear death, but rather the unlived life. You don't have to live forever. You just have to live. You just have to live. That is yes. so true, isn't it? Thank you. My guest has been Susan Wiggs. Her book is The Lost and Found Bookshop. You can find it here at Books and Books. Order it at booksandbooks.com or at your favorite indie bookstore or at bookshop.org. <laughs>